Good morning. So I didn't know if Michelle caught it last time, but I'm planning on coming to Alpha because I'm 30-ish. Okay, a couple other quick invitations. Discover Grace uh, is coming up, and we would love for you to be a part of that. It happens March 10th. Uh, This is just an opportunity for you to learn who we are as a church, what we believe, how we're organized, uh, our theology, how we do budgets, how we do missions. Really, we cover the whole gamut. Uh, We do serve at dinner there, so we need you to register if you want to be a part of this. This is one of the prerequisites for membership. Uh, But even if you're not thinking of joining quite yet, but you're coming to Grace regularly, I highly encourage coming through Discover Grace just as a way of you understanding who we are, which is important if you're going to choose any church to know who they are. Uh, The other thing that's coming up is we're doing baptism on Easter. If you have said yes to Jesus and not been baptized, what better day than to do it on Resurrection Sunday? Uh, So we would love for you to register for that. You can do that online or you can just stop at the information counter. And then I just want to give you just a little bit of a heads up with the Lint guide and all the things we're doing. So link guides are at all the doors. You're welcome to get one of those, just a nice devotional. Meg and I, that would be my wife, are in the chapel every weekday morning from 6.30 to 7.30. Uh, We just sit in a quiet space, have a little music playing, do our devotions, and then in the last 10 minutes, I just share a word or Meg shares a word, and then we take communion together. So love for you to join us in that. But I also want to point out the fact that we have this art display coming up. Well, not coming up, it's actually up. It's in the chapel, uh, and you're welcome to participate in that. It's open tonight. Uh, Meg will be here uh, kind of overseeing that, but uh, 5.30 to 7, you can go in there. What I've discovered about it, it's beautiful. The art is beautiful, uh, but the devotions that go with each one of the pictures is really sweet as well. It's not something you can do in five or ten minutes. If you're going to go through and pull up each of the devotions that go with it, you may have to come back more than once. Uh, It's called Stations of the Resurrection. It's just really beautiful. So you can see the times there that it's open, but we'd love for you to participate in that. All right. Last week, we put the wraps on Abraham, and this week, we begin a detailed look at the life of Jacob. It may surprise you uh, that Jacob takes up half of Genesis. His birth happens in chapter 25. His death in the morning of his death doesn't happen until chapter 50. So uh, a major part of the story is dedicated to the person of Jacob. And while that might surprise you, and it kind of surprised me when I actually looked at it, it probably shouldn't when you consider the central purpose or reason for the book of Genesis. Genesis is written to the Israelites who are just coming out of captivity in Egypt and about to go across the wilderness and take possession of Canaan. And the book is written to them, Genesis is written to them, to answer three of the most important questions that we can answer for ourselves as well. The first question is, who is God? God is the creator of all things. That's why Genesis starts where Genesis starts with the creation story. God is the one who chooses. God is the one who initiates. God is the one who invites. God is the one who gives the promises. And God is the one who is going to make the promises come to be. So God is a beautiful picture of who God is. The second question that's being answered in Genesis is who are we? In this case, who are we the Israelites? And it's a, the question that goes to the, to the heart of it. Who are the chosen people? Why are they the chosen people? What were they chosen to do? Where did they come from? Why are they here? And really the picture is you are chosen and from your line will come the Messiah who will bring all people. But remember, they were. this is where we get mixed up sometimes. They weren't chosen to be part of an exclusive club. They were chosen to be priests to whom? All 
nations. They were to lead all of the other nations into understanding who Yahweh was. It wasn't an exclusive club. It was meant to be the, the role of inclusivity, of bringing people into the kingdom of God. So who is God? Who am I? And then the, the interesting thing is, the last question is, what does God desire to do through us? You're chosen to be priests to the nation. So I would say it this way. Your most important three questions you can ask yourself, and it's a lifelong journey of sinking into these questions, is who is God? And if you're really honest with yourself, you'll grow in that. Who is God? Who am I? And what does God desire to do uniquely through me? This comes out of Ephesians 2.10, right? You are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do a good work that God prepared for you. And the good work that God has called you to do is different than the good work that God has called me to do. The good work that God has called Grace Community Church to may look different than the church down the street. Now, clearly there are some overlapping calls and all that, but this is the life journey. Who is God? Who am I? And what does God want to do uniquely through me? Okay, grab your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 25. I'm going to read verses 19 through 34. Let me just set up where we are in the story so far. Abraham has died. Abraham has been buried. And now Isaac is the patriarch. If you didn't bring your Bibles today, there's one under your seat. You can just grab that. Turn to Genesis uh, chapter 25. If you don't own a Bible, we just want to encourage you to keep that one under your seat so you have one at home. Uh, We still have journals for sale at the information counter if you need a journal Uh, I brought or just took a picture of my journal, and I'm not doing this for any other reason, but just to encourage you to use it. This is a wonderful way for you to capture thoughts, to to write things down so that you'll remember them later. But get a journal. You have the text on one side, a blank page on the other side. Take notes. Bring them with you on Sunday. Take notes and just uh, really utilize it. I also want to encourage you as you're reading through Genesis and studying Genesis apart from Sunday morning, which you need to be doing. If a question emerges, we encourage you to ask the question at this uh, web or this email. Ask us at gracewire.com. That goes directly to me, and I'll try to weave your question, your answers to your question, <coughs> excuse me, into the sermons. And then the last thing I want to encourage you is to participate in Tuesdays at Grace. Uh, wonderful time to dive a little bit deeper. For, for the next several weeks, our very own Trina Bresser is going to be uh, teaching on Jacob and taking us deeper in that. So Tuesdays at Grace is another great way to uh, get into this. So why don't you stand with me as I read Genesis 25, verses 19 through 20, 34. Excuse me, 19 through 34. These are the generations of Isaac. Remember, Genesis is a genealogy with some commentary involved, an important, really important genealogy from Adam all the way to Jacob and the 12 tribes. So these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel of Aramin of Padaram, and his sister of Laban of Aramin to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. 
The first came out red. All of his body was hairy like a cloak. Sounds very attractive, doesn't it? And so they called his name Esau. After his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so they named, uh, his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in the tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of the red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which is the word for red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went away. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this peculiar story. I pray that uh, as we walk through these opening verses of the next chapter of Genesis, that you would awaken our minds and our hearts, that you would speak truth. I pray that everyone in this room would hear a word from you. Everyone listening online would hear a word from you, that they would leave different than they came because they have encountered the living God. We thank you that you are a God who sees, that you are a God who speaks, that you are a God who knows everything about us yet you still love us. So I pray today that you would speak. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. There is a lot for me to talk about in these 16 verses, but I've been thinking about these 16 verses of chapter 25, and in my mind, they serve as like a movie trailer, right? A movie trailer that sort of draws your attention in and piques your interest and in, in wanting to know more. It's, it's a trailer of of what is to come. It sets up the rest of Genesis. It really sets up Exodus. And in a lot of ways, it sets up the rest of the biblical narrative. Every great and epic story has two sides that are trying to struggle to be dominant, whether it's Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or even the Barbie movie. That's right. I just referenced the Barbie movie. And so it is with Jacob and Esau, right? Israel and Edom was the two nations that the, these men become. In this case, the tension between Jacob and Esau is a battle between good and evil. It sets up the conflict that we're going to see amongst the nations. The passage tells us that like Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah struggled to conceive an heir. It's a pattern of infertility that we see continue and we're going to see continue even further. First, let me just sort of say that I'm always hesitant uh, to talk about the topic of infertility, mostly because I know that it is a deeply personal and painful subject for many people in this room and probably many people who are listening online. And so I just say, uh, I am sorry and uh, we are with you in this, but we just recognize that this is a hard subject. I'm also hesitant to talk about uh, any kind of stuff around pregnancy, because anytime a man talks about pregnancy, they are already on shaky ground. Uh, but it is in the text, and I do need to preach through it, so I just ask that you be gracious with me. Uh, and I want to start with looking at verse 20. 
Verse 20 says, And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah. Then we have a little explanation of who Rebekah is. Verse 21, And Isaac prayed to the Lord his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah's and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. Now, this all seems very matter-of-fact, right? Rebecca struggles to conceive, right? Isaac prays. Rebecca conceives. Voila, everything is great. But when you look down to verse 26, the story is a little different than we might first notice. In verse 26, it says, Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Married at 40, babies at 60. That means there was 20 years of struggle, 20 years of unanswered prayer, 20 years of persistence, 20 years of faith, 20 years of of persevering in the promise of God. In this case, Isaac does not follow in his father's footsteps. He he doesn't take matters into his own hands. He doesn't take a maidservant. Isaac has learned something maybe along the way by watching his father Abraham, but but he waits on God. He remains faithful to God. He remains faithful to Rebekah. He remains monogamous, even though I'm sure it was incredibly difficult and painful. Isaac waits and trusts that if God has made the promise of an heir, then God is going to be faithful to bring about an heir. Now, now here's where I'm a little bit on, on shaky ground. I'm going to talk about the, the cultural and personal difficulties associated with infertility in the ancient world. And I just want you to hear this. By talking about how it was in the ancient world, I am in no way implying that this is not a painful or difficult subject in the modern era as well. So just bear with me in this. So in the ancient culture, marriage was uh, seen much more contractual than we would see it today. It wasn't about romance. It wasn't about attraction. It wasn't uh, about, about dating. There was no dating sites. You didn't like have this opportunity to like, test the waters and see who you really loved the most before you got married. It was very much a contractual relationship between families, usually for the purpose of what is going to prosper the two families in this union. Right? So it's very much contractual. And I was talking about this with Stacey Lemansky. She said, you know, you need to, to talk about the fact that it, was, it became contractual, but it was supposed to be a covenant. That God's intention for marriage was that it would be a cov- lifelong covenant relationship between one man and one woman. Right? It was a covenant, not a contract. But in the ancient world, it quickly became contractual. What is best for the family? It was based on how the families could prosper, what, could, what would bring about economic prospering for the family. The problem was, if the woman was barren, right, then, then she, in essence, would not be able to fulfill the contractual or familial obligations. The family line ended it was interesting, again, talking about this with Stacy. she said that there are still cultures, she, she actually served overseas in one of those cultures, where if the woman couldn't produce an heir, the man was allowed to divorce her and or marry a second woman who could then give him an heir. So even though we're talking about ancient culture, it still exists in other cultures around the globe. It's also important to see that in the ancient world, being a wife and a mother 
was really the only opportunity for recognition or prestige. If you couldn't fulfill your obligation to give your husband a son, you were seen as a failure. Having children was a way of producing economic stability, right? The, these, these boys that were born became the very people that carried on the family business, right? So there was, a, there was an economic part to it. These are the ones that would care for you when you got old. These are the ones that would bury you and give you a proper funeral when you died. So there's all kinds of reasons. This whole idea of be fruitful and multiply became paramount, and procreation was the single most important element of the marriage in the ancient culture. And not being able to produce an heir was a monumental identity crisis. And unfortunately, the weight of the crisis fell on the shoulders of the woman. The other thing we need to recognize is the ancient cultures were karma-driven. Now, they didn't know the word karma. They didn't use the word karma. But you know what I mean by karma. You get what you deserve. Anything bad happens to you is because you did bad in the world. That really is the ancient culture. We even see it in the New Testament. That's what people believe. So the, the belief system was if you were poor, if you were a slave, if you were sick, if you were barren, it was because you sinned or your parents sinned or maybe even your ancestors sin, but it was punishment for something you or your ancestors did. So in this case, the infertility, the, the, the inability to conceive was a 20-year, just think about it, a 20-year crisis, 20 years of struggling, 20 years of deep insecurity, 20 years of shame, 20 years of feeling like a failure. But what I love about the story is it says, Isaac persisted in prayer. He doesn't take matters into his own hands, and he waits on God. He actually makes the only wise choice. He waits, and he prays. I had a fascinating conversation with Trina Bresser, I think it was about two weeks ago, and she began to just talk about this reoccurring problem or struggle with barrenness that happens amongst the patriarchs. We're going to see it again as we continue our story, but, but it begs this question, why? And I don't know that we know all of the reasons why, but I do think there are some very clear applications for us from this story. And the first and foremost is that God's promises are rock solid. If God has promised you something, he will see it through. Now, here's the deal. It's not always. Actually, it is seldom happens in the timeline that we want it to. But God's promises can be counted on. God's promises are rock solid. And, and it's an issue of faith. Having faith that God is going to do what God said he was going to do and waiting on the promise of God. So God's promises are rock solid. And the second is that character is forged in the waiting. Our character is formed when we learn to pray through the season of waiting, interceding and, and staying connected to God, even in the midst of the pain of waiting. We see this over and over in the biblical narrative. Think about King David. He was just a young boy when, when Samuel anointed him the next king. He waited decades to become king. Right, And he even had opportunities, multiple opportunities, to take matters into his own hands 
and just become king. But he didn't do it. Why? Because he was waiting on God to bring about the promises of God. And in that season of waiting, God is shaping and forming David's character so that he can carry the weight of the ministry and the weight of the promise that God has given him. And here's the problem. We live in a culture of instant gratification. We have no idea how to wait for anything. It's funny, I was talking about this in the first service and between the services, somebody much younger than me is like, young people don't even want to read things. They just want to watch a short video for it. Like everything has gotten faster and quicker. And I was like, man, we, we have no idea how to wait. And, and the thing is, there is fallout. Now listen to me, church. There is fallout when we refuse to wait for the things of God. More of that will come in a few minutes. So God's promises are rock solid. Character is formed in the waiting. And this is the phrase that you need to hold on to. It is always easier to know what God wants than when he will do it. The what is often clear, and the when, not so much. Think about Abraham. God promises Abraham an heir. There's no question of what the what is. What, what is it that you promised me, God? I've promised you an heir. But when it takes too long, when it's too difficult, what does Abraham do? He takes matters into his own hands. He takes a maidservant, and he has a child. Think about it with Moses. There is no question that God placed this, this idea of injustice in Moses' heart, and Moses sees the Egyptian guard, and he kills the Egyptian guard. He takes matters into his own hands. Instead of waiting on God, he takes matters into his own hands, and chaos ensues. The list goes on. Think about King Saul. He's told, I want you to wait. And Samuel says, wait till I show up and I will offer the sacrifice. But in his impatience, he can't wait. So he offers the sacrifice. When Samuel shows up, he says, if you'd have just waited, I would have established your kingdom forever. But you were impatient. You couldn't wait for what I told you to wait for. And chaos ensues. And that's what I want you to see. When we refuse to wait on God, chaos always ensues. When you refuse to wait on God, chaos always always ensues. As hard as it is, as difficult as it is, there is good that comes in the waiting. Isaiah the prophet wrote that those who wait on the Lord, God renews their strength. For those who wait on the Lord, they run and they don't grow weary. For those who wait on the Lord, they mount up on wings like eagle. There is a promise for us even in the waiting. And waiting is hard, but waiting is where we learn to run the race that God set before us. It's where our character is formed so that we're able to carry the promise of God. Back to the story. So Trina asks the question, why infertility? God wants to make it clear that he is the one who fulfills the promise. Listen, this is very important. Listen to what I'm about to say. Every conception and every baby is a miracle. Every conception, every baby is a miracle. But I'm not sure we always see it that way. And I'm not sure the patriarchs would have seen it that way. If Abraham had married Sarah and they had went back to 
post-wedding and, and had their fun. And nine months later, a baby showed up. I'm not sure they would have seen the baby as the miracle that they see when they were both past the age of being able to conceive a child. And God gives them a baby. And that's the miracle of miracles in Abraham's life. If, if you were to have a conversation with Abraham now and say, what's the biggest miracle in your life? He would, Sarah and him would both say it was Isaac. Right? There's something about it. Now, I want to say it again. Every conception, every baby is a miracle. I'm just not sure we see it the same way. If you uh, have friends that have struggled with infertility and at some point God has blessed them with a baby, they talk about the baby differently. They say, this baby is a gift from God. This baby is a miracle. Sometimes even saying, this baby represents the biggest miracle of our Lives. Sometimes against the, the recommendation or the, the, the medical community says it can't happen, yet God does it. There's something about that. It also points to the Messiah, a pretty miracle birth, right? There's this theme of miracle births that we see throughout the baby. But this idea of infertility really is a way of saying, I love the way Trina said it. She said, the promised heir is God's promise. And they, the patriarchs, needed to see that only God could make the promise come true. It's easy just to think, well, it's nature. We just do what we do and voila. Isaac waits. And while he waits, the passage says he prays. The word means entreats. It means he pleads with God. Listen, church, for 20 long, hard years, Isaac pleads with God for his wife. Sometimes we need to just keep praying, right? Sometimes we need to say, and maybe this is part of your journey, maybe infertility is part of it. My invitation to you is don't give up. Don't give up praying. Don't give up asking. Come back to the table over and over. There is something about persistence in prayer. Look at verse 22. We'll keep the story moving here. It says, the children struggled together within her. And I kind of find it a little bit humorous that it, it reads that way because it seems rather normal. I mean, twins are going to take up a lot of space. They're going to rustle and tussle, but, but it's totally lost on us the way it's translated. So if you're using your journal, I encourage you to circle the word struggle, draw a line over to the blank page, and write the word crushed because that's what this word actually means. Struggled in the Hebrew means broke, bruised, crushed, crushing, or oppressed, a little bit more dramatic than, oh, the babies were struggling inside of her. There is a war going on in Rebecca's womb. And it's so bad that she's saying, why me? She's actually, if you get to the original Hebrew, she's actually despairing for her very life. Like, if I'd have known it was going to be like this, I never would have signed up for this. Right? In her, in her desperation, in her pain, she prays. I love this. She seeks a word from the Lord. Verse 22 tells us, so she went to inquire of the Lord. She, she seeks a prophetic answer to the war that's raging inside her. I want to point something out. It's worth noting. If you were here last week, I made a big deal of this. Chapter 24, we have this uh, hero servant. Remember what he does? He prays. The first real prayer of the heart in Genesis, but he prays and God answers prayer. And then we see Isaac, what is Isaac doing? He's praying for Rebecca for 20 years and God answers his prayer. Now we see Rebecca and she prays and God answers Rebecca's prayer, gives her 
a word from the Lord. And I think the point God's trying to make in Genesis 24 and 25 is that prayer matters. Right, that prayer works, that prayer unleashes the power and the movement of God in profound ways. Never cease praying. The prayers of the righteous avail much. So Rebecca prays, God gives her a prophetic word, uh, and those prophetic words really become the trailer, the subtitle for the rest of Genesis and really the biblical story. It says, two nations are in your womb. Interesting, it doesn't say two babies, says two nation. It is the nation of Israel and the nation of Edom. Keep in mind, Edom is the very first nation that the people of Israel come encounter with once they leave Egypt, right? So this is helping them to understand who you are, who God is, who you are, and the people you are about to encounter on your way to Canaan. Two nations are in your womb, And two peoples, I love that it's plural, from within you shall be divided. There's going to be conflict in your home and in your country. One shall be stronger than the other, but the older shall serve the younger. The prophecy is about two boys, but it's really much greater than two boys. It's it's about two nations and, and the people that will come from them. The boys are born, and the second is grasping the heel of the first Jacob's already competing to get ahead of his brother. Now, I don't know if you are as amused as I am. When I read the Bible, uh, sometimes names are names, but other times I'm like, what? Why would you name your kid that? And this is one of those cases where I just think it's hilarious. So here's the names. Esau, it actually means Harry. Not Harry like Prince Harry, but Harry. Like they named their kid Harry. Very enduring. Jacob actually means, literally means heel clutcher or heel grabber. And I I got thinking about how crazy this must have been in the home, you know, calling the kid Harry. Hey, heel grabber, could you grab me the salt? Like, it's just a weird way to call your kids. Now, to be fair, I have given all of my kids and all of my grandkids nicknames. Like, I have a grandbaby that we actually called Beluga because he was a little bit heavy. But we didn't name him Beluga. Like, isn't that weird? Like, you would actually name a kid because that fat kid Beluga. We're naming this one Beluga. But that's kind of what it's like. So anyway, I just got very amused thinking about this. So I decided uh, to name this message because it's like a trailer, Harry Monster and Heel Catcher. It's kind of like this is the movie that we're about to sink into. It's about the Harry Monster and the Heel Catcher Jacob, right? The drama of conflict, the saga is set in motion. The boys are at odds with one another from the womb. They couldn't have been more different. The passage says that Esau is a hunter, outdoorsman. He's loud. It says that Jacob liked to hang out in the tents, that he was quiet. It says that Esau was loved by Isaac, that Jacob was loved by his mother, Rebekah. They grow up. And then chapter 25 ends with a story that the more you understand it, and I just want to draw you into the story, the more outrageous and mind-boggling it is. So Esau comes in from a stretch in the wilderness. We're not sure what he was doing. My guess is he was hunting. My guess is that he was not successful hunting because he comes in, he's hungry, he's tired, and here's a note. This is just write this in your margins. Never make important decisions when you're tired and hungry. (laughs) 
Just a word to the wise. But he's tired. He's hungry. He comes in. Jacob's in the cooking tent, and he's preparing red stew. And Esau is emotional, and he's dramatic, and, and, and he says, give me some of your stew. He's exhausted, right? Jacob sees his emotion. He sees his drama. He sees his exhaustion, and he makes a ridiculous offer. My stew for your birthright. Now, maybe that doesn't sound like a big deal, but let's just talk about birthright for a minute. The birthright in this case, because there was two sons, probably meant that Esau's had a right to two-thirds of everything that Isaac had, and Jacob would get one-third. Now, we know they were very wealthy. Abraham was super successful. All of that went to Isaac. So we're talking about a lot of moolah, right? This is a big deal. You are forfeiting a lot of stuff, a lot of camels, a lot of goats, whatever constituted wealth in that day, lots of cool jewelry, right? All of that. You're only going to get a third now, and your brother Jacob's going to get two-thirds. So there was the money part of it, but there was also this idea that the firstborn, the one that had the birthright, became the patriarch when the patriarch died, right? So all of the other siblings came under the leadership and were subordinate to the one who held the birthright, right? But there's also this promise Remember their grandpa had this promise that from you, a promise seed will come through which every nation on earth will be blessed. They would have known that promise. There's no way it was probably written on the wall in their kitchen. Like they would have known this is the promise. Those are all the different elements that's being proposed here. But the drama king Esau, he says, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Here's what I want you to know. He is not about to die. People who are anywhere near death from dehydration or starvation aren't able to walk into a tent and carry on a conversation. He is not about to die. He is just being dramatic. Right? And think about this. He is the number one son. It tells us Isaac loved Esau. So all of the slaves, all of the servants would have known he is the number one son. And all he had to do was ask for food and they would have fed him. He has servants. He just had to say, look, I'm hungry. Somebody go get me a sandwich, right? Somebody go get me whatever I want. They're going to get it for him. Go kill the fatted calf. Whatever he said, they would have done it for him. But he's impatient. He fails to recognize the value of what he has. It's interesting that Hebrews 12 restates what the end of chapter 25 says. Esau was foolish because he despised his birthright. He did not see the value. I have this like reoccurring conversation, although I think my grandkids are getting wise to it, but I do it all the time. I do it sometimes in the cafe, but but it happened just this week with... uh, Uh, Jordan's son, Drew, was coming out of the children's wing, and uh, he was holding a sucker, and he was holding it like this, which is a good sign that he's very proud of his sucker, right? And I said to Drew, I said, Drew, can I have your sucker? And you know what he said? No. And I said, Drew, I'll give you $100 for your sucker. And you know what he said? No. As if I was going to steal it from him, because nobody trusts Pastor Doug, right? 
But I just, I like to do it with the kids because every time I do it, the parents are always like, take the money, take the money, as if I'd really give them $100 for the sucker. But here's the deal. Drew doesn't understand the value of the dollar. He doesn't understand the buying power. He doesn't know how many suckers he could buy with the $100. So he's, he's innocent in this story. But Esau, on the other hand, is very guilty. He despises the greatest treasure he could have had. With just a modicum of self-control, right, he would have known the value of the birthright and the ridiculous offer. So I've been thinking this week, like, what's the equivalent of this transaction, right? What, what's the equivalent? So it's maybe like if I said, this is a peanut butter and pickle sandwich, exactly. Somebody said, ew. And I'd like to trade this sandwich for your vacation home on Lake Michigan. It's actually even greater than that. Or how about uh, I were buddies with uh, Elon Musk, and I said, Elon, for this bag of chips, I would like all your stock in Tesla. Right? It's even greater than that. Whatever the, the chasm between the values are, the, what happened between the two brothers is even greater than that. Most of you, what would you trade for a bag of chips? Not much. What would you trade for a bowl of soup? And it's lentil soup. Who likes lentil soup? Nobody likes lentil soup. They shouldn't serve it in restaurants. But anyway, that's what he's trading. A bowl of lentil soup for the birthright. What do you, what do you have of value that you would trade for a bowl of soup? I'm guessing most of you are like, not much. Not much. But here's the deal. This story is a warning for all of us. When you read stories like Esau, it's pretty easy to say, how could he be so dull? How could, how could he make such a foolish transaction? But the better question is, how am I just like Esau? Esau wants what he wants, and he wants it now. He's unwilling to wait and can I tell you, church, it's a dangerous place to be. And unfortunately, if we're honest, we find ourselves more often than we like to admit. We are all guilty of clinging to worthless idols. We're all guilty of grabbing on to what we think we need right now and forfeiting the promises of God at times. The truth is delayed gratification is a life skill we all need to learn because when you refuse to wait on God, chaos always, always, always ensues. And when you think about it, Esau could have had stew every day of his life going forward, but he wanted what he wanted and he wanted it now. I was thinking about this passage and this, trying to teach this, and I just kept coming back to this moment where it's just so much passion in what Jesus says. But Jesus is talking to the people, the Israelites, who forfeited the promise, who forfeited the promise, and Jesus says, if you, even you, had only known this day, what would bring you peace? If you only knew the value of the promise. 
if you only knew all that I'm offering, if you only knew everything that we have in our relationship with Jesus, if you only knew you wouldn't trade it for a sandwich. Where are you willing to forfeit the promises of God for instant gratification? If you're a student, Where are you willing to forfeit the promise of God for instant gratification? Maybe you're single and struggling in your singleness. Where are you willing to forfeit the promises of God? Maybe you're married. Maybe you're just starting your family. Maybe your house is full of children. Maybe you're an empty nester. Where are you willing to forfeit the promises of God for instant gratification? We all face different challenges. We're all in a a different phase of life, you know, different. But regardless, God promises us more than we can ask, think, or imagine if we're willing to wait on him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the story of Esau. And I do pray that we would have the wherewithal to just Ask the question, God, where am I being selfish? Where am I moving too quick? Where am I taking hold of things that aren't good for me or healthy for me? Where do I want instant gratification when you're saying, wait, wait. What I have for you is better. Wait, wait, wait. Help us to be a patient people. Help us to be a people who persevere in prayer. Lord, I thank you for these stories. I thank you for how they challenge each of us to walk faithfully with you, to trust in the promises of God because your promises are indeed always yes and amen. Amen. Hey, the people that prayed for you this morning, uh, this is, they've heard a few things. Uh, that There's somebody in the room or online that's just struggling and, and want us to pray that God would break an addiction, uh, that they just feel like they're in bondage. We would love to pray that over you. Um, and someone is sick but was unable to come today, and so that may mean that you know maybe it's a sibling or somebody within your family. We'd love to just come down and we'll pray for that person, or if you're online, you can call and we'll pray for that person as well, but uh, we would love to pray over you. There's people that will meet you down here, physical, emotional, a little bit of both, whatever you need from Jesus. Maybe you already know that area that you've been impatient, and you just want somebody to pray that for you as well. We would love to do that. Come back next week as we continue the journey with Jacob. You're welcome. In hard times, I've realized.